Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news. And it's the good news of the grace of God. You know that without God's grace, you and I are eternally lost. There's no hope for us. And it's important to us to under, for us to understand and, and, and truly strive and endeavor to understand what the effect that God's grace has on our lives. Now, we know that grace is something that's closely related to God's benevolence, to his kindness, to his mercy and his love. It's the grace of God that makes him willing to forgive us when we come to him and we repent of our sins. And it's his grace that makes him want to bless our lives in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. You know, before, before we receive the grace of God, you and I were born into sin. We're guilty from birth. Guilty of breaking God's laws. We were enemies of God. And what we deserved was death. We were unrighteous. And in that unrighteousness, there is no way for us to justify ourselves. We can't. There's nothing. I cannot be good enough to justify myself to a holy God. Oh, I try. But everything I do falls short. I cannot justify myself. Our spirits are blind. They're unclean. They're detestable. They're destitute. And they're dead. These are all things that God's Word tells us about ourselves, about our condition, before we experience the grace of God. And again, because of that, because of the, 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 the level, of, because of the status of our hearts, of who we are, we are destined for wrath, for eternal punishment and separation from God. That from God, that is our future. But the amazing thing is, is that we when we encounter the grace of God, what God does is He extends His favor to us, because it is grace that saves us. It says so. In, Paul says in Ephesians two eight, he says, "For by grace you have been saved through faith." And some people say, well, it's my faith that saves me. No, it's God's grace that saves you. It had, you receive God's grace through the faith you have in Jesus Christ. Because Paul goes on to say, and this is not your own doing. It's not me doing this. It's not you doing this. It is a gift of God. See, what, what grace does, grace gives us the ability to have victory over our sin. And it's grace that gives us hope. And that hope, grace itself, has been embodied in Jesus Christ. The book of John. John says, And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. Because He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
It's basically saying Jesus has always been. He is God. But here he says, and the word, meaning Christ, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And so our, what we need to do is when we encounter the grace of God, we need to accept it. We need to repent of our sins, and we need to receive his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But there's a danger in doing that. And, and I'm not so sure I've ever heard this said before, but when I look at Scripture, this is what it says. There is a danger in receiving when we receive God's grace. Paul warned the church in 2 Corinthians 6, 1, he says, working together with him, he's talking about the fact that, you know, this is, this is how you're saved, this is what you do, but working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, I, I, had, to be th- I had to start thinking about that. How was it possible for us to receive the grace of God in vain? I mean, it, it, Paul says, don't do it, so apparently it is possible. How is it possible? I mean, isn't grace this all-forgiving forgiveness and kindness that God gives towards us? I mean, isn't God all-powerful? Isn't he able to overlook the fact that I don't, you know, eliminate all my sins? I don't repent of all my sins when I encounter his grace? I mean, can't he do that? Yeah, he's all-powerful. He can do that, but that's not how grace works. I mean... Can't God compensate for my half-hearted response to him? The truth is that not only does grace accept us, grace also must transform us. See, it's not just that I go to God and I repent of my sins and I get his grace and I'm done. No, his grace continues to work in us, to transform us, to change us. If we only want God to accept us without changing, that's when we receive his grace in vain. When we don't change, when it has, when we, we encounter God, we encounter his grace, and then we go back to the same old way of living. That is receiving his grace in vain. We're not, it's not changing us. It has to transform us. And when we do that, when we receive his grace in vain, then our Christianity becomes worthless. It doesn't save us. It's not like, you know, I wish it was this way. I wish that when I encountered the grace of God that it would just completely change me immediately and all my sins are gone. I have no temptation. I don't have to worry about anything anymore. You know, I can just walk through life. I don't, I'm never going to be tempted. Well, that's not true. That's not what happens. We're all tempted. We're all going to be tempted. Jesus himself was tempted. Lent starts on Tuesday. You know that Lent is 40 days. Well, that's talking about the 40 days when Jesus was in the desert being tempted. Jesus, who Paul tells us is full of truth and full of grace, was tempted. Grace does not just eliminate all the temptations in your life and all the struggles in your life. What it does, it it gives you a foundation, a rock, a solid ground to begin to work through those sins, to eliminate those sins in your life, and to have a firm foundation to walk on. That's what grace does. That's how it transforms us. You know, we live in a world of our minds. 
Think about this. We all have this moral, this conceptual, or this emotional landscape where we live inside of our heads. Mine's sometimes like yours. Sometimes mine's like Dr. Seuss. You know? A little odd. A lot odd. But we, 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 how we think and, and the desires that we have for the things of this world have an effect on us. And what is happening is grace, God's grace, is trying to work through those to eliminate the ones that are not good for us, that are sinful, that are not of Christ but are of the world. Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't just... Boom! I know people. I know people who were addicted to drugs and alcohol, and they 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 meet they encounter Christ, they meet God's grace, and immediately they no longer have the desire for either one of those things. It happens. But I would I would argue that a large percentage of us are going to struggle through our lives to eliminate those things that that God doesn't want in our lives. That's called sanctification. And it's just something that we have to deal with as humans. The great thing is, is that I don't do it alone. I have God's grace. I have his peace. I have his, his love, his compassion working through me and in me and around me to help me work through those things. That's why it's so important for us to continue to meet together as brothers and sisters in Christ, to help each other walk through these things. But see, these obstacles that we have in our head, if we allow them to, can inhibit the advance of God in our lives. That's this whole idea. We've talked about this in the last couple of weeks where we, we place things above God. That's what we're doing. We're taking the, 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 the world in our mind, we're taking the things of this world that we, we desire, that we want, and we're placing them and making them more important than God. And how do we know that? How do I know that? I know there are things in my life, and I'll be honest with you, there are things in my life that I think of more than I think of God. Those are things I'm working on. He's telling me. I mean, he's bringing them to my mind. Hey, you know, you still struggle with this. I'm like, yeah, I know. I need more grace. I need more of God. I need you more. I need, I need this. And it's not just God doing it through me, you know, working it inside of me. I need to work with him to do this. It's not about salvation. I've been saved. It's him working through us. And, and that's the, or the works part, you know. Faith without works is dead, yes. But... Works to be good need faith. It's a two-way street. So today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how sometimes we resist the work of God. The work of His grace in our lives. And we're going to look at how God disciplines us. And how we resist His change. His grace is attempting to work through in our lives. And we're going to, we're going to do it and see it in how Isaiah, it, what Isaiah is saying to Judah in Jerusalem. So if you're in Isaiah, let's go to Isaiah 5. We're going to begin with verses 1. We'll do verses 1 and 2 to begin with. We'll end up going through the whole chapter. This is what Isaiah says. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of its stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, Isaiah, God instructed Isaiah to begin with a song, but it wasn't a song to entertain. 
You know, we, a lot of times songs entertain us. That's not the purpose of the song. This song is, is, is to, to teach us something. It, something very com- similar to this is when, when the prophet Nathan confronted David about his infidelity with Bathsheba. He comes and he tells him a story about a, a man who had a lamb that he loved. And he, he basically confronts David with his sin. And that's what this is doing. This song is just kind of, it's kind of giving us a teaching of what God wants us to learn. He, what he does is he shows this comparison between lavish grace that God gives us, how much he's poured out on us, and then the lackluster outcome in our lives. What happened is, you know, he, he says here, I, plant, I, had a, I had a vineyard, it was on a fertile ground, I, I did everything I can for it, and it didn't produce grapes, it produced wild grapes. Wild grapes are not very much worth anything. You have to mix them with other grapes to get them, hybrids basically, to get them to grow. I mean, they're not good. They're not good for making wine. They're not good for anything. They're definitely not table grapes. So this man has a vineyard and he's invested every effort he can into it, but they grew wild grapes. But what went wrong? You know, I, I love to I love to plant. I have many gardens, many vegetable gardens, and, and I'll plant some seeds. And you know, they just they don't do sometimes what they're supposed to do. I mean, you're a seed. Your job is to grow. Now, sometimes it's my fault because I forget to water it. But if I water it and it still doesn't grow, I want to know why. So why why are these grapes now not good grapes but wild grapes? The, the owner did everything. Well, in, in most cases, there are only two possibilities of what went wrong. It was either the owner or the grapes. But see, in this story, in this song, the owner did everything he could to have good grapes. So he asked, in verses 3 and 4, he says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? I don't know about you, but it sounds to me like the fault lies in the wild grapes. It lies in the grapes. It wasn't the vineyard owner's fault. You know, sometimes we, we tell ourselves, when we find ourselves in difficult situations, and we find ourselves where we've stumbled in sin, we say, you know, if I just had more time, right? If, if, I just, if I just had done this or had done that in the past, or if I had been a better wife or husband, or if I had a better wife or a better husband. We make a thousand excuses. If only our worship was more exciting and more contemporary. If only our worship was less contemporary and more hymns. If only, if only, if only. These are all just excuses. And at the core of each of these excuses is a criticism of God. Because, see, he has given us everything we need to succeed in him. It's not the vineyard owner's fault. It's the grapes. So, obviously... If God's given it, what has God done? What has he given us? I started looking at this and I'm like, wow. I was extremely humbled by thinking about what God has given us. 
And I don't even mean me specifically. I mean, he's given this to all those who believe in him. First of all, he removed all condemnation from us through Christ Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, he establishes a new covenant so that the righteousness of the law can be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we no longer have to go through the ceremonial laws to be made clean. We no longer have to make sacrifices. We no longer have to worry about mixing food. We, don't have to, we no longer have to worry about all the ceremonial things in the law. Believe me, we still have to love the Lord your God. We still have to obey our fathers and mothers. We still have to have no other gods before him. Those are God, but the ceremonial parts of the law are done. Jesus fulfilled them. And now we have righteousness under Christ. And it's fulfilled in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus now lives in us. As life is imparted to us by the Holy Spirit. He leads us in our new life by the Spirit. And awakens inside us a sense of God's fatherly love for us. We can sense His love. I want my kids to know that I love them. So I tell them I love them all the time. You know, God tells you that He loves you all the time. I wake up in the morning and I take a breath. God loves me. (laughs) I see the beautiful sunrise. I see the plants coming up. I hear the birds singing. I see the robins coming back. I see spring happening. I see a beautiful snowfall. All these things. That's God telling us, I love you. I'm your father. He makes us co-heirs with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth that are to come. And in the process, he will fulfill all of our hopes in that. And see, until that time comes, God works good things in our lives, all according to his eternal plan. And you know that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. I mean, man, God has been very busy on our behalf. So why do we fail? I mean, it's, it's definitely not his fault. It's not, it's not that he hasn't done enough. It's not that our Heavenly Father hasn't done enough. He's given us every opportunity. He's long-suffering. He, he, he forgives us over and over and over and over again. It holds nothing against us. When we repent. But see, today, there are many people who want to blame God for everything that goes wrong in their life and everything that's happening in this world. We are to blame for the failure in our lives to live as Christ. We are to blame. And to walk in His light, not just as individuals, but as a church. We are to blame for failing to live up to the expectations that God has for us. And they're really not that big. Love him with all of our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our strength. Love our neighbors as ourselves. Pretty simple. And if we do those things, we'll fulfill everything he wants us to do. So God only has one choice. He only has one choice with Judah. And that's what he does. He's going to say he's going to do in verses 5 through 7. He says, now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. 
I could just imagine, can you imagine? I'll, okay, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do to you. <laughs> I imagine they were shaking in their shoes. And this is God. I mean, I could, I could do some pretty drastic things to my children when it comes to discipline. I don't much anymore. I've threatened to take away the Legos and make a fire and watch, have them watch me melt them all down. I've threatened it. I haven't done it yet. But this is what God says he's going to do. He says, I will remove its hedge. You know, God is protecting us. He protected Judah, and they didn't even know it. No, you, you know God protects us, and we don't even know it. We don't even know it. And it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and the briars and the thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, behold, he found bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God had given Israel every opportunity to live like they were supposed to live, to be the people they were supposed to be. God gives us every opportunity to turn to him, to follow him, to allow him to move in our lives, to change our lives, to lead our lives. But what do we do? We put things in place of God. He told us how to do it. It's all right here, folks. It's all here. How to live your life. It's all there. He gave us the manual. He tells us. He sent someone to help us do it. The Holy Spirit. Who's God? There, there are times, there are times when, and I'll, I'll admit this, there are times in my life where the Holy Spirit's, you know, I feel I'm, I need to do something. I don't hear him tell me anything, but I feel that, you know, I know what I'm supposed to do. But I also know what I want to do, right? And I think I know better than the Holy Spirit. You don't know, none of us know better than the Holy Spirit. But he's here to assist us in accomplishing the tasks that are laid before us. When we're unfruitful in our response to God's grace, by we ignore our by ignore what we do is we ignore our weaknesses and we, and we don't overcome them. And we should do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Instead, we try to overcome them on our own, and it doesn't work. We fall right back into it. And what happens is we become wild grapes. And God will remove our hedge of protection. And what happens is we end up being devoured. This is what happened to Judah. And, and as I look today, as I, I look in, in, in our world, I'm, I'm wondering, are we in any better position than they were? Do we expect God to protect us? We've always, in this nation, we've always acted like we are special. We are, we are God's chosen because look how God has blessed our country. The hedge is going to get taken down one day. And I believe we're already seeing the edges of it being cut. So God's going to give them. He's going to give them six woes. These are, these are things that ha- are happening, and I, I think they continue to happen today. In verse 8, he says, Woe to those who join house to house, who had field to field until there's no more room. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. 
I found that's, that's kind of an interesting way of looking at it. Think about this. Think about so you have a, have a, a you own you own the, the your house that you live in, and and you don't have you know you're rich. You don't have even enough. You have to worry about money. So the neighbor sells their house. I want to buy, buy their house too. And then you buy this neighbor's house and this neighbor's house and this neighbor's house. You want to buy the whole neighborhood. Kind of lonely, isn't it? Who are your neighbors? I don't have any neighbors. I, I own all their properties. That's what was happening in Judah. People were buying up the land, putting the houses right, in, you know, putting the lands right next to each other, where the, you know there was no, you really didn't have neighbors. And this is says, the Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, which is a small amount, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah, which is a very small amount. I mean, we've heard it before. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer, right? This is what was occurring in Judah. Back in Leviticus, Leviticus 25, God declares who owns all the land. Do you know who owns everything? God. Guess who owns everything in this country? God. He owns it. The land is his. And what he wanted for them, what he wanted for them, and this is why if you look at where they, when they, when they came into the promised land and they started separating out the land, apportioned according to the number of people in each tribe, the, the land was given to families. And the families were supposed to pass that down from generation to generation to generation. And even, the interesting thing is, if you ever heard of the, the year of Jubilee, the year of Jubilee was after so many years, if you owned, if I owned my neighbor's land, his family didn't own it. I owned it. I could own it for seven years, and after seven years, I had to give it back to the family. God intended it that way. That's not how we do it here. I'm not saying we have to do that here. But you got to understand, that's, that was part of the problem. When we, when we want to accumulate more and more and more and more for ourselves, richer and richer, they had accumulated so much property as if God, what God wanted was useless. He told them, it's not yours, don't do this. And they did it anyways. They had no regard for their fellow Jew. None. The land, which is intended to be a blessing, ends up being a curse because it ends up isolating them from everybody else. Empty. And I see that happening today. You have, you have the elite of this world that we live in separating themselves from the common man. Oh, well, they're just the, they're the mighty unwashed. They live in their ivory towers, no clue of what it's like to live day to day the way most of us live. And I could name a whole list of names. And believe me, they're the ones causing most of the trouble right now in this world. They think they know better than all of us. We are the great unwashed. So beware what you build. Beware what you build. He goes on. This is the, the second woe. Woe to those who rise early in the morning. Well, there, there you go. See, I get to get up late, right? <laughs> no. 
Say, but that's, that's what we do. We take one verse and we, we put theology, make a theology all about it. Because it says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. He's not just talking about getting drunk. He's not just talking about you know drinking because that's not what he's saying. He's, what he's talking about, he's using it as a symbol of those who, who seek pleasure all the time. All they want is pleasure. They get up in the morning, that's the first thing they think about. How can, I, how can I bring pleasure for myself? They have the liar. They have liar and harp, tampering and flute, and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. See, according to Paul in Romans 8, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who live according to the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit. And those that live according to the flesh are drawn to the things of this world. Entertainment. You all, you've all know what it's like. People will say, well, yeah, what are you going to... Oh, man, I can't wait till the weekend. Yeah, we're going to go out and party! But those that live according to the Spirit are drawn to worship God. And I don't mean have to come into a church to worship. I mean, you worship God in everything you do. You bring him glory in everything you do. Because seeking one emotional thrill after another will actually lead to quenching the Holy Spirit. It'll hamper the Holy Spirit in our lives. The best example I have of that is I love going to amusement parks and riding roller coasters. But man, by the end of the day, I am done. I have screamed so much. My, my equilibrium has been thrown out of kilter so many times. I try to ride as many coasters as I can, and I feel I just, I'm worn out. When we seek pleasure one after another after another, what happens is the pleasure that used to satisfy us here no longer satisfies us. Now it has to be expanded. That's how Facebook works, believe it or not. I got one like, dopamine hit, I want more. Give me more. So you may get even more provocative, trying to get more people to like your, your Facebook post. That's, they know this. Facebook knows it, and they, they're, they're basically giving you a drug. That's why when people get off of it, they're like, oh, I want to check my Facebook. <laughs> it's, it's not good. So he says... These two woes. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure in the nobility of Jerusalem, and her multitude will go down, her revelers, and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and no man shall eat among the ruins of the rich. See, when we are living in the flesh, we will fall due to our lack of knowledge. Oh, we think we're smart. People, the people who are living in the flesh, they think they're super intelligent. The elite of this world think they're super intelligent. They've lost common sense. They've lost the knowledge of God. The, not all of them, but many of them. 
The irony is that we partake deeply of the things of this world. We want the things of this world and we take them in deep. The very things that we think will fill us leave us empty and hungry. They don't fill us. If we pursue riches over justice and compassion for our fellow man, we're going to, ironically, we're going to be swallowed up by death, exiled. As, as Israelites will be. And he warned them. Isaiah's warning them. This, it's more than just this military conquest. It, it's just a matter of, of removing them completely from the land. The very thing that God had given them, he's going to remove them from it. It's this kind of death. And where's God in all this? God. He is proving his holiness by disciplining his people. Do you know that when we when God disciplines us, He's proving that He's holy? Verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it, let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let him come, it come, that we may know it. See, sin in our lives is a burden. That's why God says, you know, take my yoke upon you. Lay, give me your burdens. Give him our sins. We, we, we give them to him. He took them on the cross. But see, we do it to ourselves because sin is a liar. Sin will tell you something that's not true. Its promises are empty. So why don't we just throw them off? We know this. We've been told this. But why, do we, why don't we do it? Because we're deceived and we cling to our favorite sins. Our hearts say, I'm bored and I'm disappointed with God. I want God to be real to me. I wonder where God is in the mess of all this world. This is why there are many churches who it's not so much about preaching the word, it's about having an encounter. Did you experience God today in worship today? Well, everybody else was raising their hands, so I did. And, you know, the lights were down. It's an encounter. It's about the encounter. It's not about the gospel. Because gospel gets watered down, and it becomes an, an ultra-emotional experience. And I'm not saying there, ha- there can't be any emotion in worship. What I am saying is it becomes overbearing, where the emotional response is more important than the heart response. It's not real faith. See, what real faith does, real faith strains for God. Welcomes the impact of his grace that it has on our lives. Because when we are impacted by the grace of God, it changes us. We get to start seeing these things that are not good for us. And we want to change them. Verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. It's happened a lot today. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Don't we rationalize sin? Don't we? We rationalize sin all the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing, I, I may be doing that, but I'm not doing that sin, right? We redefine sin in order to avoid shame. We don't want shame. Well, we can't have shame in the church. We can't teach. There have been pastors, I've listened to them say, oh, well, we, we don't teach on sin because I don't want people to feel shame. These are the and these are the you know the celebrity pastors that you see. We don't want people to feel. I'm not going to preach on sin. I want them to feel shame. I want them to feel happy about themselves. And what happens is we choose to lose our sense of taste in our hearts by rejecting God's law. 
taste and see that the Lord is good. We lose that taste when we rationalize our sins. God's grace cannot thrive in our lives unless we rediscover the sweetness of the law of God. Verse 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Hmm. You're educated way beyond your intelligence. That's a common phrase I use. Grace will not thrive in our lives until we realize how much we need to be saved from ourselves. We need God to save us from our foolishness. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Our personal indulgence in sin is going to affect ourselves, not only ourselves, but everyone else around us. And it's going to ultimately impact everyone. Godly justice occurs when we embrace a life of meaningful wholeness that benefits not only us, but those around us. Bribes don't benefit anybody but those that are being bribed and the person paying the bribe. And he's going to close this book with a, this chapter with a look at the core of what, what is wrong and the judgment that is to come. Bear with me. We're going to go over here a little bit. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so the root will be as rottenness and their blossoms go up like dust for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Folks, that could be us today as a nation, as a church, as a community, as people. If, if we despise, if we reject the law of the Lord and we despise the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked and their corpses were of, of, as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is, is stretched out still. He will raise the signal for the nations far away and wrestle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp and their bows bent and their horses' hooves seem like flint and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Here's what I want us to understand today. None of us receives the grace of God with a whole heart. Which is why the final answer to our failure is Jesus Christ on the cross, dying for us. We need to fully embrace God's grace because Jesus is the true vine. He changes us from wild grapes to good grapes. It's Jesus who bears the good fruit in our lives. Without him, we can do nothing. Nothing. So we have to abide in him. And he changes us, and the grace of God works in us. We we can't blame God for our fruitlessness. It's not his fault. We need to look at our fruit, look at our results, and ask, are we abiding in Christ? Because this is what Jesus told us in John 15, 8. 
By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove yourself to be my disciples. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're watching on YouTube, please like this video as it will help in spreading this message into the global online community. Please consider subscribing to our page so that you will receive notices when we post new messages. If you're watching this on Rumble, please hit the Rumble button for this video so that the gospel can be spread into the Rumble community. Also, consider subscribing to our Rumble channel. You can also listen to our podcast on Amazon Music and Apple Podcasts. We hope you have a blessed day.